uh, what was I going to get the other day? Oh, melatonin. I was going to get melatonin pills, and I had to double check because I had wheat in it. Huh. For a pill. Yeah. Ridiculous. There's worse things. Brian, how's it going? Going good, man. How are you? Going well. Um, are you having a good lockdown? I mean, as good as we can. <laughs> I mean, what we were allowed to do, I'm in Philadelphia, and we're still kind of like on this indefinite shutdown, despite our mayor breaking his own rules. But, I mean, I guess we're, we're making it work for what we can. Let's pick on the mayor of Philadelphia just for a second. It's so easy. Yeah, he went to Baltimore violating his own uh, non-dining-in orders because the rules in Baltimore were, uh, were laxer. So. Yeah. It's almost like some of the uh, was it, what's the old animal farm quote? Some animals are more equal than others. <laughs> yeah. So is it is it uh, and I I ask this a lot, but is it a let them eat cake kind of thing where our overlords feel that um, as long as they lock the rest of us down, it's safe enough? But I've and I used to think that that's what it was. It was just like arrogance. Mm. Well, I'm I'm too essential to <laughs> to follow these rules, but um, I'm starting to be convinced that they don't actually believe that their own lockdowns work. No. Because why I, would you yeah. risk your own family like that? Yeah, I, I think it's more so to create this this persona of like, we're in control. And, and I think we're seeing this more and more as the lockdown goes on. It's a, it's a really a difference between the folks who believe that we can kind of make this work without the government telling you who's essential and who's not. And then those who are trying to create the sense of control to maybe make people feel a little more I, like they have some sense of idea of what's coming, but then to your point, right? We see they don't actually believe this stuff, they, yeah. and and it's it's quite obvious. I mean, we see it with with Governor Newsom violating his rules in California, Whitmer uh, with her family, you know, going to their vacation homes. Well, if you spend over four hundred dollars a plate, it's it's <laughs> it's different. Like COVID forgets. Yeah, COVID doesn't. It's like after people. 9 p.m. in the bars in New York. Yeah. They don't know that you're going to be there. I mean, yeah. or no, it actually does know that you're going to be there. Or unless you order chicken wings, in which case, oh, wait, no, chicken wings don't count from Mayor Cuomo or uh, Governor Cuomo, right? What is it? You have to order like an actual meal in I, order I had for to buy a, to avoid? I had to buy a bag of chips in the Dallas airport <laughs> because they were um, COVID preventing chips. Isn't apparently. that wild? Yeah. Uh, it's funny because, uh, you know, I was, I was saying before him, my wife and I, we, we live in, in Philadelphia, but, you know, you just go over you know, one road into a different zip code and all of a sudden COVID doesn't, it doesn't impact indoor dining. It's amazing how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. But, uh, let's, let's, let's take a step back. I, I don't want to go down the COVID thing because <laughs> people that watch this show are probably tired of me. Just can't, I, I honestly, I can't blame it. It's it. every day, right? Yeah. It, like COVID it's in our mainstream, like nonstop. But one of the, one of the upsides of political stupidity, um, for, us at Free the People, and I was having this conversation with with Eric July down at the Blaze TV studio, is like, once you sort of get stuck in this this lockdown thing, it forces you to innovate, because in his case, he was gonna take his band on the road, mm -hmm. which is how he made his living. Right. In, in our case, like we do lots of public speaking and lots of events and that kind of thing, and um, in a strange way, the being forced to, to change your plans um, sparks new innovation. Um, and there's a metaphor for what the government should have done with COVID. Like if we actually needed new innovation, perhaps we could have done it from the bottom up. Yep. But uh, how, about, how about you? Like you just uh, give everybody a little bit of background about your 
about your podcast yeah. and We Are Libertarians and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm part of the We Are Libertarians Network, which was started by Chris Spangle back in 2012. How'd you come up with the name for your show? The Brian Nichols Show? How about that? I know it's, it's very creative. Um, yeah. and, but actually, no, really one of the things in my sales experience is you try to create some branding, right? Um, so looking at the We Are Libertarians Network and, and yours truly here at the Brian Nichols Show, um, one of the things that I've focused on doing, and this has been through my political journey as well, is trying to create value, right? And and as a sales guy by by trade, one of the things you're always trying to do is is be a problem solver, but at the same point in time trying to create value in solving said problems. So, uh, you know, with Chris Spangle starting We Are Libertarians in 2012, it's gone through many different iterations and and as it's grown, it's opened up the opportunities for other shows like the show I have at, at the Brian Nichols show and for the past 3 years, one of the main things I've been doing is been having folks on the show to really have conversations about the issues people care about. Um, and this is one of the things I think a lot of libertarians or just folks in the greater liberty movement have not really paid attention to. It's talking to normal people and talking about things that people are actually having conversations with at the dinner table, right? I think too often libertarians have entered into conversations talking about what we think people care about instead of asking them. And and here's the, the best part about when you ask or, or someone. Or what we want, we insist that they care about. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we'll tell them until we're blue in the face how much they should care about the project that we think they should care about. But when we actually ask them, what do you care about? They're going to tell us. And, and I think part of the problem is that too often libertarians just, we think we already know what they need to know. So with my show, I've been asking people in my audience, what do you guys want? And they've been wanting to know how do we sell the ideas or concepts of liberty to people outside of our movement. And at the end of the day, that's kind of why I've taken my show and turned it the way I have more recently is because at the end of the day, everything in life is sales. And, and this is something we have to get past from not just the liberty movement, but just as a society in general, there's this misconception when we talk about sales. People think you're used car salesmen or they'll think like snake oil salesmen. But at the end of the day, truly salespeople are problem solvers. So if we're able to, as folks in the liberty movement, enter into conversations that people are already having in their mind, again, those bed bug problems that people have that they need help solving, and we're able to build trust, help solve those problems, we are instantly their trusted advisors. And once we're their trusted advisors, now they're gonna come to us and ask us on some, maybe some stuff that they're a little a little weary on. They're like, hey, Brian, you know, I know you were, you were quite, kind of right about that whole lockdown thing, but like, talk to me now about like student loans. And then I can point them towards somebody like Brad Palumbo, who's been doing great work on student loans. And, and they might take what I'm saying now a little bit more consideration versus otherwise. So I can, tell them all day long what they need to hear. But until we're able to ask questions, learn from them, and actually know what folks are, are really concerned about, then we're just falling on deaf ears. So you you are actually a salesman in your day job? Yes, yeah, sales executive. So I um, lead a sales team uh, in, in telecom. I, I have a sales team. Our job really is to to go out and find qualified opportunities for my company in, in telecom. So you know we're looking voice data, cybersecurity, business continuity, and, and having conversations with IT directors, CIOs, folks like that. And part of kind of my doing that, I realized that this is just take this and apply this model to liberty. Like there's, there, I think we see too often folks trying to constantly reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. You don't need to do that. Like the wheel's already there. Is how do we make it work better? And in this case, the liberty movement, we've just been ignoring that sales, we already have like what works in sales, but we need to apply it to what we're doing in the liberty movement and, and what you've been doing at Free the People, telling stories, having conversations, 
that's, I think, what people are looking for when they're trying to actually engage in these conversations is like, is it going to be something that's got value to it? Is it something that we can get past like the bumper sticker slogans or the quick three minute soundbite on CNN? And they're looking for this, you know, 30 minute hour Joe Rogan, three and a half hour, in some cases, conversation, because I think people are, are at the point now that they don't want to hear the, you know, the the screaming heads, the debates. They want to have these long, thought out conversations and really dig into these issues, because I think we're starting to realize that constantly having this like hyper, hyper partisan tribal approach to politics and to governance, it's destructive and it's leading people to resent their neighbor. And I've been getting more and more folks, and I'm not sure how you what you guys have been experiencing here at Free the People and, and at QBN Liberty, but like I've had people reaching out to me like, can we have more of these conversations? Like, can we have people that you disagree with on the show? Because I want to hear how a real conversation, like a real dialogue happens. And too often than not, I mean, you watch a, a quick five-minute segment on CNN and you're going to see Team Red versus Team Blue screaming at each other for five minutes. And if you're a member of the audience, what are you walking away from as a value that you can then bring forward from that segment. Nothing, probably. Right. Yeah, young people don't go there. It's, no. it's uh, you, you get a little bit dumber every time you watch one of those debates. And and unfortunately in our business, you and I probably have to consume some of that content just so that we know what Fox and MSNBC and whatever the Scream Fest of the day is. You know, this reminds me of, uh, Penn Jillette was on the show last year, um, pre-lockdown, so because we were actually in Las Vegas. and. And he sort of uh, scolded me because I, I asked him the question, like, how do we how do we convince people that, that liberty is is a better answer to all these problems? And he's like, that's your problem. Your job is not to convince people. Mm. And his his point was um, um, he takes a very passive approach to selling liberty. And he would object to that phrase, actually. But right. but he's wanting people to figure it out for themselves. And. And I think one of the reasons why a three-hour Joe Rogan um, uh, jab fest is so compelling is that Rogan, I mean, he has opinions, but he doesn't really jam his opinions down people's throats. He just asks questions. Like, right. It's like, well, really? Is that really? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's what you have to do. You have yeah. to ask those questions because if you go in, and we see this too often than not with, with libertarian politicians, and I'm going to pick on the libertarian party, not because they're fun to pick on, but because that's the, the group I care you know the most about in actually enacting policy. Because I think, you know, we look at the end of the day, I'd say libertarian ideas and principles, we can agree, you know, that they probably are going to be the, the best to actually solve the problems we have, right? So I look at some libertarian candidates, I get a little frustrated because we have a harder job already because we're outside of the mainstream right now your average person they see red team blue team and they you know they might see a gold team every now and then but that's like once in a while probably in their local elections and then every four years they it's, get yeah it's like it's like three days before the election when they're so desperate they just watched <laughs> they just watched the debate where the libertarian was explicitly kept off the stage and yep. they, they start googling who is the other person yeah <laughs> and and like we shouldn't make it harder on ourselves being the party that's already having to face an uphill battle by approaching messaging from, from a completely like alien perspective. Like we have to be able, and I, I mentioned this earlier, we have to be able to enter into the conversations that people are already having in their own minds. And I, I, I teach this to my sales team when we're talking about IT directors or, you know, CIOs and we're calling in. I'm like, if you were to call in 
and and you were to you know tell the person how wrong they were or you know how how stupid they were for picking the the thing they did before you're gonna get instantly hung up on and that's what's been happening too often to folks in the liberty movement where we tell people exactly what's wrong but we we do a very woeful job in actually explaining our solutions. So what I would love to see, and if is, they don't get it, we just raise our voice. Exactly. <laughs> if we get like, louder, like as if they're deaf. Yes, because yeah. if we get louder, they'll definitely hear us. And yeah. that's the part I think we have to get away from. We have to get away from from lecturing and and preaching, and be more so. Again, your trusted advisor, the person that they are going to pick up the phone call and ask a question to, because they're like, hey, listen, I know that you're right on X, Y, and Z. Help me on this because this issue I can't. I can't see the answer from the red team or the blue team. Help me out. And that's where we have to do a better job. But we're not putting ourselves in the position that we're even getting that phone call. Yeah. Right. Like it, how much is, I assume in sales, because um, I know this when it comes to nonprofit fundraising, 80% of the process is listening and actually trying to understand where the customer's coming from. Mm -hmm. Is that is that true in, in your world? Absolutely. But also um, asking questions to uncover those problems. Too often you'll see, um, you know, you'll have a salesperson on the phone with somebody and if you're asking a question and the second word is you, the answer to the question is probably a yes or no. And as soon as you're getting a yes or no answer, you've done something wrong. We need to be able to ask open-ended questions to allow people to tell a story. I mean, I like to use the analogy, like think if you're 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 looking at a court case, right? And you have your your um, prosecution and your defense. The the defense, your job of the defense is to ask the open-ended questions, get the story told. Whereas if you're the prosecution, you're trying to get them you know, cornered for the yes, no, you know, you finally got the nail right there, nail in the coffin, you caught them and the lie. That's what you're trying to do in the prosecution. But from the defense, if you're getting them to tell the story, you have to ask those open-ended questions. Otherwise, objection, you're leading the witness. So I'll, I'll joke with my sales team every now and then, I'll drive them crazy. I'll be like, you're leading the witness because you need to be able to ask those questions because if you're already approaching the conversation from the mindset of, I think this is your problem, you're going to lead with that yes or no. It's like, hey, Matt, is... X, your problem? Yes. No. Great. If you say no, well, now what? Versus, Matt, tell me what. Tell me what's up. Like, what's what's been you know the number one thing the past five months that's really been you know the the number one issue that stopped you from being the best version of yourself, from seeing your company hit whatever metrics you're looking for success, or if you're you know maybe a mom and pop from actually keeping your doors open, right? And then once we're able to learn, we can say, hey, listen, yeah, I, I completely empathize. And here's the problem. Red team, blue teams, they're not gonna help you out. They're not gonna offer you solutions to answer the problems. However, we do have alternatives out there. And in the marketplace, we're always looking for alternatives, right? Because competition breeds not only innovation, but also will help lower costs and increase those services. And right now, libertarians, we've done a bad job in trying to present ourselves as a viable, Viable. That's the key right there, right? A viable third uh, third party. And you're you're talking, and you're of course talking about big L libertarianism big L. as yeah. opposed to philosophical libertarianism, which um, can find itself, I think, across the absolutely the political spectrum. But uh, the how long you haven't always been a libertarian, big L? <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's been um, a, been a little bit how, of a journey. How long? How long? So I I guess I officially became big L 2018. I, I signed up for my membership. Um, got my official LP card, but I've been questioning my, my, or I guess I was a former recovering Republican, right? And I've been questioning my political self for quite a while now. Um, I remember the, like the first 
real like seed of doubt, much like I'd say everybody else here was Ron Paul 2008 during the debate against Giuliani. And I was like, that's different. That's not a normal Republican talking point. We usually light a candle every time we mention. Yeah, I'm Saint, sure we'll have, Saint, you know, you Saint can Ron see Paul, it from yeah. space at this yeah. point. Um, but other than that, believe it or not, it was actually in 2012, not with Ron Paul, um, surprisingly, surprisingly, but it was actually with Mitt Romney when he lost. Um, Cause I was the president of the Republican uh, GOP and college Republicans. And I was like, what happened? Cause I, I mean, I thought he was talking all the right things. And I kind of came to this like realization. I was like, we need to have a fiscally conservative, but socially, <laughs> socially accepting. That was my mindset, uh, Republican party. And as I started to like, you know, do the, the Google searches or the, the duck duck goes of what that would be. I kept on coming back to these, these libertarian thinkers like, you know, Ron Paul and then Milton Friedman. And, 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 you know, you go down the, the rabbit hole, right? You go Hayek, Rothbard. And, and then all of a sudden I find myself, I'm on a YouTube page and I've been watching videos for about four hours. And I found myself realizing that I wasn't actually this big R Republican, but more so a little L libertarian. And, and believe it or not, I was actually reading uh, this one book called Don't Hurt People, Don't Take Their Stuff, a Libertarian Manifesto that really kind of planted the seed for sure that I was a libertarian. I hear that's a good book. It's actually a really good book. I read it again uh, recently. A guy named Matt Kibbe wrote it. It's, a, it's actually a really good read. Pretty quick page. By the way, that's... It, it actually stole it from Santa Claus. Oh, yeah. well, I mean, Santa Claus... I, I don't know if that's bad, but I... No, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, because Santa Claus, I mean... So I've heard the argument he's a socialist, but I don't know if that's that's real. Nah, he's, he's a he's an anarcho-capitalist for sure. Oh, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. Have you watched Klaus yet, by the way, on Netflix? It came out? Is Which one is that? I, I've been binge-watching Christmas So Klaus, it, it came, I think it came out last year. It's the one with uh, the mailman, and he's uh, put to the North Pole... No, no. No, I, it's a good I one. I watched the new uh, Mel Gibson one, which I thought was spectacular. Fat Man. Oh, so I haven't seen that one yet. Okay. It's kind of a Quentin Tarantino version of Santa Claus. Which oh, so lots of blood and guts? Yeah. Oh, well, okay. Well, why not? <laughs> Santa Claus and blood and guts. Can't, can't beat that. Anyway, Claus. Yeah, I was going to say, so Claus, the, the movie, it's just one of those really, I was going to say, it's a, a genuinely feel-good movie. But um, no, it's it's one of those shows, it kind of, it does, it, I think, approach trying to go after capitalism at one point but it kind of reels itself back in but overall just definitely a good good uh good movie to watch yeah we, worth we, the season we can't give up santa claus no. i mean we're, we gave up everything else like <laughs> santa claus is where i draw Please. a line in the sand Keep but, Santa. so the um you you, you switch to the libertarian party and the I, I, this debate goes on every day i watch <laughs> liber, well libertarians love to fight about absolutely everything yes. um but the, the purpose of the Libertarian Party, and I'll, I'll tell you what I think it is, and I, I sort of learned this from Ron Paul, and he, he actually did it as a Republican, not a Libertarian, but um, politics for me, at least anymore, is not really about policy change. It's about um, using a cultural platform to talk about ideas when people are paying attention. And presidential debates, and mm -hmm. you know Ron Paul taking on Rudy Giuliani, um, that was that was a moment where he just turned on so many people because they were paying attention. And otherwise, like, you know, who's who's going to tune in to a three hour conversation about about globalism and foreign policy? Right. I hate to use that word because it doesn't I don't know what it even means. But, <laughs> um, you know, uh, sort of neoconservative foreign policy and, and, and why we're still in Afghanistan after after a lifetime. But. That, to me, is one version of the Libertarian Party. There's another version that says we need to win elections so that we can actually implement policy. And, and there's, 
there's a there's a few that have sort of broken through that that ceiling, but not that many. Mm-hmm. Where where are you on this spectrum of we have to win or we have to use it as a cultural platform? So I think we can do both. I, and I know that's kind of a cop out answer, but I do look at the Libertarian Party as a vessel, right? When you look at the LP, I think right now the LP's role is to serve number one as a foil to the red team, blue team, but also to give people a true alternative, which will hold those other two parties accountable. Now we're seeing this right now in Georgia as we're recording. Uh, you know, a friend of my my program, Shane Hazel, uh, he was a U.S. Senate candidate out in Georgia as a Libertarian, and he forced uh, I think it's the Purdue election to go to a runoff. And and Shane, as a Libertarian, got I forget how, I think it's 140 some odd thousand votes. And like those 140,000 votes, those people made a conscious decision to vote for a different party because those two traditional parties weren't meeting the bell. And and that's something that it can't be understated. The LP is playing a role. However, there is a role for little L libertarians. And I say that being the folks, you know, the, the Republicans out there who self-identify as libertarians or heck, even some of the Democrats who are more, you know, empathetic with some libertarian leaning ideas there is absolutely not only a role but it's it's i would say it's required for us to even have some credibility because we can refer to those people and those wins and show the value of to your point the policy and how it impacts real people's lives when we're making those appeals to more of like the the culture right so for example if we were to look at um let's say Justin Amash, right? The one big L libertarian that there is in Congress right now. Uh, you know, Justin voting for, uh, you know, voting for the, the marijuana legalization. Uh, Justin leading the charge on ending qualified immunity. Without Justin being there as that role as the big L, then I don't know if we're going to have as much as a voice. Take it to the Republican Party. You have someone like Thomas Massey, who really, he forced people in Congress to come to the White House or to the, the Capitol building to cast a vote on the biggest, really the biggest increase in our debt in ever, right? And that's something that I think we need to make sure we're encouraging people to acknowledge because without Thomas Massey, we may have had this entire bill that was voted for the spending bill during the, the coronavirus without anybody's name attached to it, which, I mean, that also would have been horrifying. So I, I would say there is a very important role for both the big L libertarians and the little L libertarians. And I, I guess I'll, I'll finish with this. I want to see uh, a more lively, active libertarian party from a local uh, perspective. I think, and this is just in general, we need to start pushing things locally, going back towards like this federalist approach to governance, because I think the most winning argument right now, and this is being really exemplified with the pandemic and the lockdowns especially, is that whatever governments are at least able to, to govern the most local the better, because then you're not having to worry about, you know, California setting the, the lockdown policy for Texas or Florida or Michigan or New York, but vice versa. Now we're not having, you know, California terrified that they're going to have to do all the open, uh, you know, open business that, that Florida's doing. So there is this very important yin and yang, if you will. Um, but it's entirely necessary with a federalist approach. And, and I think right now that's where libertarians need to be focusing, is focusing this libertarian federalist message because that's where I think people are gonna be able to really gravitate, whether they're progressive, conservative, or somewhere in between. So should we, um, uh, one of the big debates in the libertarian party right now is 
Um, are we more likely to connect with conservatives, you know, disaffected Republicans that look at $24 trillion in debt and, and a radical expansion of, of sort of the uh, power of the presidency under Republicans, mm-hmm. Trump and Bush in, in recent memory, just radical expansion of, of uh, presidential power. Yep. And of course, Barack Obama after Bush and Joe Biden after Trump will say, okay, I got it. Yep. I'm running with it. So like, there's lots of reasons to be a disaffected Republican. Absolutely. Um, but there's, I still think that there's uh, tremendous opportunities not to talk so much to progressive politicians, but to talk to young people who think that AOC is cooler than Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we should we should be talking to those, those Absolutely. kids. Oh my God, we're dropping the ball if we're not. And, and I was just actually talking about this with, um, I think it was with Brad. I, I grabbed coffee with Brad beforehand. And it's like, when you look at AOC, what is she doing? She's having you know these Twitch conversations and, and stuff with, with hundreds of thousands of people. And it's like, who's the Republican version of this? Who's the Libertarian version of this? And I mean, yeah. we can go to Thomas Massey, kind of, I guess. Justin Amash, kind of. But are they playing Twitch with hundreds of thousands of users? No. So there is a really big opening for us to have those cultural conversations. But I don't know if we're going to necessarily have the most success using the GOP. And I say that because, to your point, there is a really big negative perception from a vast majority of Americans when you instantly mention the GOP or the red team and vice versa. I mean, you you tell anybody in a rural red area that you're a Democrat and I'm sure they're going to look at you like you have five heads. So there is kind of this, this again, going back to the yin and yang between these two different camps. So I think looking at the libertarians, be they big L or little L, we have to kind of go into, if you're going to go to the big L camp, be the, the candidate, like try to be as open and and trying to promote whatever it is that bed bug issue is for your specific locality, right? So if lockdowns are the biggest thing impacting your area, you go after lockdowns. If the war on drugs is the biggest issue, you go after the war on drugs, civil asset forfeiture, yada, yada, yada. But then if you're going to use the GOP or the Democratic Party as a platform and really as a tool to enact whatever it is you're looking to enact, whether it's trying to kick people's attention like Ron Paul, get policy into an action like Rand Paul's doing, I don't care. Right at the end of the day, just decide what you're going to do, and then use that party to enact that. So you look at somebody like Rand Paul. Rand Paul is using the Republican Party to reach people that otherwise he would just absolutely not be able to reach to if he had an L next to his name. That's just a fact. Like you can't you can't just look at Rand Paul and be like, oh yeah, he would have just as much success. It's like no, he wouldn't. But to the to the same point, right? We look at folks like like you know Gary Johnson. And Gary Johnson went from being an R to getting an, a, the L next to his name and instantly just drops in, in the support. And that's because Americans don't trust us yet. Why do Americans not trust libertarians? Because we haven't really given them a reason to. We've been able to talk a good game, but we haven't been able to show value, especially in those local those local elections. So to kind of take this and put a nice bow on it, what I would say is libertarians out there, if you are looking to run for office, I would a thousand percent encourage you run local. Like local is the best means to start building up that resume because for better or for worse, Americans are looking for the resume. They want to know, okay, you know, were you dog catcher to city council, city council to mayor, mayor to assembly, and now assembly to Congress. And then you can use that to actually say- That's that's sort of the Thomas Massey roadmap. Bingo. Yeah, exactly. And like, that's, that's kind of necessary for 
your average person to feel comfortable. Like, okay, when I cast my vote for you, it's more than just casting a vote. You're kind of trusting that person to do what they say they're going to do. And, and that's where we have a responsibility to like be that, that candidate, like say like, Hey, listen, the lockdowns are our issue and we're going to take care of it. If you elect us into local office and if you get elected into local office as a libertarian, you better make sure that you go out and you, you, you follow through. And then once you follow through, you build that trust. Then as you run for whatever that office is in the future, they're going to give us a little bit more credence. They're going to listen to us a little bit more seriously. And that's Candidly, Matt, that's why people haven't really paid attention to us because we haven't given them a really a, a really substantive reason to give us any attention. You know, it strikes me that the 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 localism argument. I mean, this is like get get to a a libertarian values sort of based argument, and we believe in local solutions. We believe right. in people voluntarily getting together and solving problems, and and that's that can I mean that that should be our strength. It could be a liability because that's very different than making an empty promise like, I'm gonna lock down everything until COVID. <laughs> I, I think the- Until nothing bad happens ever I, again. <laughs> I, I think the governor of California actually said until nobody dies. I'm that's like, a, that's a wow. lofty, lofty goal. Zero deaths in society. I, I don't know where that is, but it's not this world. <laughs> but you know, it sounds really good. It's and, the Galactic Federation we heard yeah, about. I will never die if I vote for this guy. <laughs> um, but localism in all of its complexity is really hard to put in a tweet. Yep. Um, we're going to figure this out. And that's what it comes down to. But the, you know, the, the genius of the American model is, is that thing, but it's more of a lifestyle than it is a policy solution. Yep. Um, because you're basically saying, I'm going to respect people enough to not decide to herd all of my uh, recovering senior citizens into nursing homes. Yeah. Um, that seemed like an obviously bad decision, but there are all sorts of good sounding decisions that turn out to be tragic as well. Um, it's, it's difficult to do that. And so I, when I see libertarians sort of fighting about like, do we talk to Republicans? Do we talk to Democrats? Um, I mean, I, I think we talk to everybody, yes. but it's more about what you're saying, like. And who you're saying it to. Yeah, and, and less about these, these, these sound like very top-down strategies to me, and, and our whole point is that we're the bottom-up guys. Right, yeah, and, and it requires us to, to, to be different, and, and to also, and this is one thing I, I always, I, I drive my sales teams nuts with, but like, you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So like, if you're going out, and you're talking to Democrats, and you're like, geez, this is tough, good. That means that you need to get better in that certain area, and feel challenged because at what you're doing when you're talking to that group of people is you're making them feel uncomfortable. So you have to be comfortable in what it is that you're promoting, but also understand that while you're doing that, you're, you're kind of, you're putting people in a very vulnerable position, right? You're kind of making them reconsider their entire worldview. And that's a really big deal. So when you realize like, I gotcha, like when, when you kind of get them in that, that like cognitive dissonance trap, don't call them on it. You just got to take a step back because, I mean, I know we want the instant, it's like, I gotcha. And you want to do that Jordan Peterson, like, ha, gotcha, when he was interviewing uh, Kathy Newman. But you can't. You have to be able to let them kind of like realize that on their own at their own time. Because really, and, and it's a silly analogy, but we have to be like gardeners of liberty. Plant the seeds. We, we have to make sure that we're going out there and we're, we're casting a wide net. 
but at the same point in time, it's not going to grow overnight. So we, we have to take our time, plant as many seeds as we can of liberty, and slowly watch them as they grow. And, and like look for the areas that we are having success. So on the left, I think we're having a lot of success talking about the war on drugs, criminal justice reform. Um, I mean, you can go down, you start talking about uh, ending you know, the uh, overseas wars. I think there is a, a conversation to, to be had in the left. On the right, lockdowns are absolutely the number one thing that the GOP has been going towards. And I would say it's to the LP's detriment. We haven't taken up that argument. But right now, lockdowns, lead with that. Lead with taxes. The, L- with the LP's split down the middle on lockdowns. <sighs> LP has been split in the middle of messaging about lockdowns. I would say like we have not been able to have a cohesive. Here's what our statement is without some wishy washy, you know, backhanded like, but also make sure you're taking consideration your fellow Americans. Like, yes, that goes without saying. But can we just boldly say without a, a question that the lockdowns are inhumane and they're like causing long term <laughs> devastation to hundreds of millions of Americans like this is this should not be controversial and we shouldn't apologize for saying it like it's blatantly true but we still find ourselves trying to, to you know play footsie with folks who they, they don't really care about and to your point right we're talking we started this conversation off with some of the mayors and the, the governors they don't care like they're just trying to create this perception of control and order because once we start to accept maybe this isn't exactly controlled and orderly like we thought then the entire system starts to get these little red flags popping up everywhere and once people start to really ask questions then there's gonna have to be some answers and if there's no answers to be had then i would say the electorate's gonna get a little uh, antsy even more so than they have been for being under lockdown for like what 10 months now yeah, there's there's no there's no exit strategy to lockdowns because you have to first of all we never get to zero deaths. Right. Tragically, yep. we live in a world where people die. Um, Weird, but that happens. There's, I mean, to get out of lockdowns, you would need the humility of of lockdowners saying, you know what, that didn't work. Let's yeah. try something else. And politics can't do that. But, but yeah, that's uh, it. My my sense is that that lockdowns and the human devastation caused by lockdowns probably are the window to have this conversation. And it doesn't have to be. It's, it's such a partisan issue, yeah. um, oddly, but I don't think it has to be because we, we have to shed light on on who gets hurt. I mean, we have a new, I mean, let's go full marks. There's haves and have nots. Yes. When lockdowns. There's and, essential and non-essential. Yeah, there's essential and non-essential. There's like, if you're of a certain um, profession and a certain income, you're probably not feeling the lockdown right now. Yep. Um, honestly, in my business, I'm fine. I'm in telecom. I'm People fine. need what my company is selling yeah. more than ever. Like this is how you stay connected. But then I know that there are bartenders out there who are literally just struggling to make a rent payment. And like, that's the people that we should be talking to. Like, and this is the part too, like they are so open to this argument right now because they're living through the real pain. But I would say we are, again, are, we're leading with the things that aren't mattering to them on the top of their head. Like if we're going to go in and we're starting to talk about, you know, name fringe issue here that it's really important to us, like, okay, great. I'll listen to that, you know, when I'm not trying to make sure I can put food in the table for my kids. We right. have to prioritize and they really rank what is it that is, is going to catch people's attention. We have to pique their interest. And then, and this is the, the part too that I think a lot of libertarians, it drives me crazy. They try to be, you know, the, the master, uh, or no, what is it? The uh, skill, many of, something of many, but master of none. Um, that That's kind of like your average libertarian. We, we see your average libertarian, they'll, be, they'll try to be the salesperson, the educator, the, the recruiter. 
And you can't necessarily do all of it at once. We have to appreciate that certain people in our movement can do certain things well. So I had Larry Sharp in my show. Larry Sharp ran for governor in 2018 in New York. Love Larry. And Larry's like, Brian, I'm the recruiter. I'm going to bring in as many libertarians as I can to the movement. And you know what? When they're coming to the movement, I need you to tell people in the LP that they're not libertarian because I need you to train them. I need you to help educate them on what it means to be a libertarian. I can get them in and get them interested in liberty, but I need you guys to help craft them into libertarians. And that's it's also where we've been dropping the ball a lot. We see, you know, vote totals. And, and vote totals are one thing to look at. You know, four million down to a million or so from the libertarian presidential candidate. I'm more concerned, though, with the, the membership that, that stuck around. And we, we haven't really seen membership stick around. So my question is to the LP, what are we going to do to build up that base of long-term, lasting member? Because in business, who you go after? You don't always spend your time going after new customers. You, you make sure, number one, that your returning customers are happy. And we haven't really focused on trying to get, number one, to get those customers to stick around, but number two, to stick around for the long haul. That's the main thing that we've really been dropping the ball on. So I, I guess I'll ask you, Matt, what are your thoughts? You know, do you think, and this is the, the host in me coming out, do you think telling stories is going to be the way that we're going to be able to captivate a lot of these people like you guys have been doing it for the people? Or do you think we need to like be more, you know, going out, talking to people like face to face. And I asked, I mean, I had Cliff Maloney on my show and he, he gave me a stat and it blew me away. So he has um, young Americans for Liberty uh, guys who, and girls who go out and knock on doors. One out of every nine door that they knock on, they can get a vote from. So that's something it's working. So like, why aren't we doing it? So I guess, what, what, do you have any opinion there on that? Well, it, it's, it's like different things for different people. And I, mm. I think, I mean, the Larry Sharps of the world to me are probably the most interesting aspect of, of libertarianism because having been a former grassroots organizer, um, what we're trying to do is very different. Right. Like, like we're not building a cadre of people that, that um, n read all the same books I did. <laughs> Uh, we could do that. I mean, that's sort of what the Libertarian Party is now, and that's fine. But the the goal here is to to have a communication strategy that that turns a bunch of young people on to this idea. They just like we call them liberty curious, right. and that's very different than being libertarian. It's having a sensibility that says, you know what, um, maybe um, maybe if the government wasn't so involved in that, things would work out better. And just having that sort of aha moment, but and I was actually you remind me of a an a event I did with with Larry Sharper where we were talking about this very question, and it it struck me that and this goes sort of back to what Pendulette was saying: are we are we recruiting people to the party, um, or are we building a community that's actually big enough to tolerate lots of disagreements, um, particularly oh, like particularly as you're. Um, as you're learning yeah. and, and evolving and, and thinking things through. And and it strikes me that if our goal is to convince a majority of Americans to be big L libertarians and and to be able to quote Rothbard, um, no offense, Logan, I know he's you're a fan, um, but that's not it. Like it can be, it can be very sloppy, messy coalitions on war like Ron Paul created. A lot of Ron Paul supporters came from the left yeah. because of that issue on criminal justice that, that cuts, you know, it, it's very attractive to evangelicals on the one hand and progressives on the other that, that, that want to defund the police. I, I think all of that is fine. Um, and I'm reminded, and I've told this story before, but there's this, there's this awesome New York Times article 
um, where all of Bernie's old socialist pals in Burlington are talking shit about him because <laughs> he's not nearly socialist enough. Oh, and great? he's been such a failure for the socialist movement. And I'm thinking, dude, he just got the entire Democratic Party on board. Right. And now has all of these acolytes like AOC, and there's there's some more that that came in in this last class, and and that sort of bitching and whining about how he's not pure enough reminds me of any sort of ideological movement. Yep. You have the purists, and and I'm kind of one of those guys myself, but I'm also a grassroots organizer, and if if purity is your only goal, um, you're going to be small. Yep. And we're going through tremendous growing pains now. Yeah. Well, I always say, do you want to be the king of being right? Or do you actually want to get people to be more free? So you can, you can. I, I don't think you have to choose. I'm, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you on this. I don't think we have to choose, but we at least have to be welcoming to people that don't agree with us 100. percent Yes. So when Tulsi Gabbard is good on war, <laughs> exactly. She's not good on everything. No. We all know this. I mean, she, she's a at least a former Bernie bro. I don't know if she still is, and she's probably evolving in her thinking as well, but. Um, I think it's really interesting that she's she's a Democrat. The the authoritarian progressives hate her guts. Yeah. I'm like we should have conversations with her, not so much that that she who has a fully developed set of views is going to change, but um, all of her young fans they're they're searching, they're yes. curious. They're, I had a guy like, in my show. So oh, man, I'm so glad you brought this up. I had a guy in my show. He was running for New York State Assembly in 2018, and he was running as a self-avowed democratic socialist. So I did an entire show, and it was called Ask a Democratic Socialist. And and with that show, I knew that I was never going to change his mind. I didn't want to change his mind, but I knew for a fact that he was going to share that show. And there was going to be folks that were his followers that were listening, and this was the first time that they were ever going to hear a libertarian perspective. And that, that for me, just for them to hear a different perspective versus they probably have been in their echo chambers for years and they haven't heard any other ideas besides yeah. democratic socialism like that right there that for me was more value than you know trying to convince him that free market economics is better than democratic socialism because at the end of the day he's not going to change his mind but if i just planted that seed in like five people's minds that were his followers i think i've done my job for that day yeah and that's that to me is a really interesting opportunity and something that we worry about a lot at Free the People, we have a, a our next video coming out is called "Let's Talk About Democratic Socialism," and it's a it's a new series we've done where I've I spent a lot of time listening to what democratic socialists think they're saying when they talk about democratic socialism, as opposed to my knee jerk reaction. Well, that's a contradiction in terms. Mm-hmm. Like uh, socialism is top down, uh, democratic in the best sense is is bottom up. Right, and I'm. I happen to be pro-democracy, by the way, and that upsets some libertarians, but my version of democracy is where people make choices. Mm-hmm. And it's not the vulgar uh, 51% of the public gets to do whatever the hell they want to right. the other 49% who, <laughs> who, who lost. Right. That's, that's a very dangerous idea. But, but democratic might mean um, your abil- ability to listen to Taylor Swift if you really need to. God help, help your soul. <laughs> Whereas I'm gonna I'm gonna be streaming dead shows from the '70s, yep. and and somehow or another we're both better off. Yeah. And to me that's that's a thing. But it, like I wanted to understand, and there's a, there's a huge literature on democratic socialism. They they've been arguing even before Marx about what they mean by this. And Marx came wow. in with a with a very authoritarian version, a very dangerous version, obviously that kind of 
stamped everything out. But um, the whole purpose of that exercise is to talk to young people who are probably more attracted to the word democratic than socialist. Mm -hmm. And they're hoping that it means, and, and AOC at her best actually describes a very bottom-up process of communities cooperating yep. and solving problems. Well, of course, you and I know that, that socialism every single time, what it's is always it, the best of intentions, 40, right? 43, 45 times we've tried this, yep. um, it never turns out that way. Even in places like Venezuela, which were legitimately democratic, yep. um, socialist, but then they just naturally devolved into a brutal authoritarian regime. Yeah. So I, like, I, I think there's, um, there's an opportunity, but it go, kind of goes back to where we started. Are we listening to the people who disagree with us enough to sort of respect them? Like, right. do you respect that they're actually trying to figure out how the world works as well? And, and sure, there are, there are disingenuous and, and even evil people promoting ideas across the political spectrum, but when it comes to our fellow Americans, they're just, they're just trying to figure stuff out. Yeah, and I think it's important for us as, as small L, big L libertarians, or just lovers of liberty, to remember that not everybody is ever going to 100% agree with us. And that's okay. I don't I don't think I want 100% of people to agree with me. That'd be a little weird. And I'm not sure, are, are you a fan of The Mandalorian by yeah, chance? Yeah, okay, yeah. so I just watched um, the, the the gallery, it was called, is a round table of all the directors. And uh, John Favreau, who is the creative director for the, the Mandalorian, he brought in, like I think it's like six or seven different directors. And you have Tatika uh, Watiti, you have um, Dave Filoni, um, Deborah Chow, Bryce Dallas Howard, a few other. And then like to go through and listen to each of these people at the table, they have completely different ideas of how to film a Star Wars show. But they brought all of them together at the table because with all their different perspectives, they were able to create, in my opinion, the best Star Wars uh, content that we've seen since, what, you know, the original trilogy, probably? And, and, like, for me, that shows that what the answer is going to be going forward is not just libertarians, just socialists, just progressives, just republicans, just democrats. It's going to be a society where we all have different perspectives in our different localities and we're allowed to live free. And you're allowed to live your life so long as you don't hurt people, you don't take their stuff. I feel like we should end right there. How but, about that? Uh, well, let's, let's end with uh, you telling us where we subscribe to the Brian Nichols show and, yeah. and just what you got coming up. For sure. So, I mean, as you aptly said, the Brian Nichols show, it can be found Brian Nichols show com um, doing three shows a week Monday Wednesday Friday and really the goal of my program not only is to show folks how to approach these issues from a, a solutions based perspective but also we're trying to have conversations with people about the issues that people genuinely care about because I want my audience to walk away from every episode feeling they were educated enlightened and informed and if I'm able to have my audience leave each episode feeling like that I know I've done my part to help at least get somebody in a better position to maybe wake somebody up. That's going to be, I think, the, the main thing is we need to be really the alarm clocks of liberty. Get folks out there interested in what we have to say. And we have to make liberty sexy. Like, stop trying to, to hide behind, you know, the, the, the dogma and get out there. Show the value of what's going to do for people in their real lives. You want to talk about, like, getting people, you know, free, right? 
talk about ending the lockdown. It's about getting more money in people's bank accounts because it's not being taken away. That's what we're doing at the Brian Nichols Show. I'm having guests on. I mean, I've had CEOs, politicians. Um, you know, I've had C-level executives on my show. I had the chief marketing officer from TireFitness.com on my show. So really, it's it's. I mean, heck, Matt, you've been on my show multiple times. We have folks from all over. And, and really, at the end of the day, uh, what we're trying to do is have conversations that people are going to be able to actually walk away with and and make some real difference. In the I world. want you to land Baby Yoda as a guest. I would love to do nothing more. no one's more. been able to do that. Grogu. Yeah. Little, little Grogu. We'll get him on here. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.